Hello, and welcome to Eyes on Success, a weekly program covering a wide variety of topics of interest to people with vision loss. I'm Nancy Goodman Torpy. And I'm Pete Torpy. Well, this week's episode is a repeat of a show we did several years ago in which our guest talks about getting a stem cell transfer and corneal transplant to restore some of his vision. We'll speak with Mike May, subject of Crashing Through, a best-selling book about his experiences. Having lost his vision initially at age three, his visual cortex was only partially developed, and he had to learn some things he never knew and how to use what new vision he got back. And towards the end of this episode, we will have an update on how things are going now. But first for our tip of the week. This week's tip comes from Mike May. You use the tools for what they're good at and you recognize their weaknesses. And I think what Mike's trying to say there is that, you know, there's a variety of tools for doing almost any task. And sometimes you just have to use that variety of tools because some of them complement each other. There isn't always a single tool that accomplishes what you want to do. And he actually made this comment in an uncommon context, as you'll hear later in this show. But we selected this clip as our tip because it really applies universally. Support for Eyes on Success is provided by... Guide Dogs for the Blind, working to help individuals who are blind or visually impaired move through the world safely through partnerships with trained guide dogs. More information is at guidedogs.com. And by NaviLens, a four-color QR code designed to be located and read from up to 60 feet away without the need to focus on it. Now, using augmented reality, NaviLens 360 Vision locates the NaviLens codes in a 3D space available for iPhone and soon for Android. More at N-A-V-I-L-E-N-S dot com. Baby, where to get those crying eyes? Now, that's not our normal breaker tune. That was Sarah Beck performing a song that she wrote about Mike May's experience losing and regaining his vision. Let's start by meeting Mike. This is Mike May. You're visually impaired, I take it. Yeah, I've been totally blind since the age of three, blinded by a chemical explosion in a mining town of Silver City, New Mexico. Did you have any vision at all? I had light perception. Both of my uh, eyes were burned, and, and one of them didn't function at all, and I got a prosthetic in it, and the right eye had a little bit of light perception. That was it. I had four operations by the time I was 12, and they kept trying to replace the cornea in that good eye, but they eventually gave up because it was like trying to plant a tree in cement. It's not going to grow if the tissue around the cornea is not healthy, and in my case, it was very scarred. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. You said you were blind from a very early age. You obviously then learned a lot of these skills in terms of mobility and Braille very early in life. Can you describe your childhood a little bit to us? I grew up in mainstream schools. This is before it really was something that was mandated by the various laws. We had 
a resource room at a particular school in our county. So all the blind kids, 10 or 12 of us, went to the same school, but we were in with 600 sighted kids, and we had our resource teacher there and learned our Braille and mobility and so forth. But then I also got to be on the, the school sports teams and such. That must have been interesting. What kind of sports did you play as a blind child? Uh, I loved everything sports, and I think I learned um, some of my crashing through ways of dealing with life and getting smacked into by different things. I remember at age five going out on the playground and wanting to go on the swings and not realizing just where I was, and somebody swinging smashed right into me and knocked some teeth out and me over. And you'd think somebody might learn from that lesson and not go back out on the playground, but I did. I loved tetherball, where you hit the ball around a pole, and then I was on uh, the football team, the flag football team. And that's kind of a tricky thing for a blind person to do. But I learned very quickly that when you pull a flag of the quarterback, that's how you get the person down. That's the equivalent of tackling them. Well, there was no point in trying to figure out who was the quarterback. And I would just pull everybody's flag that I came to. And this became such an intimidating thing for other kids that as I would rush towards them trying to reach for their flags, they would get out of my way, which, of course, in football is exactly what you want. <laughs> so you were, you were a good rusher. <laughs> I would get to the uh, quarterback eventually, you know, one out of five times and, uh, and create a down. I've always said that when uh, people say, well, how would you become an entrepreneur? And I thought, well, you know, from age three, I've had to learn to be adaptable and to find workarounds to things. And that's really started in sports and in school and eventually worked into my career. And apparently Mike didn't give up sports when he graduated from school. As an adult, he was clocked as the fastest totally blind skier going downhill at 65 miles an hour. So I would guess you must have gotten a lot of support from your parents. I mean, I often find that, you know, successful folks at that age, you know, a lot of it's due to the encouragement they get from their parents and not over-sheltering them. Yeah. Well, interestingly... I had really a combination of both. Not being overprotected was a function of the fact that my mom, who became a single mom when I was 13, she had five kids. And you just can't overprotect one kid out of five. Um, it's just physically impossible. Having raised two kids myself, I don't know how anybody deals with that many children. But the good news was that I had to step up to the plate and uh, help with cooking and behave myself and be a leader in the house and it couldn't be the sort of thing where she or the other kids were pampering me. So that was one thing that was just a matter of circumstances. And then also, of course, uh, through life, my mother was an amazing support and a hero of mine. I think it's very important to have very supportive parents, and I certainly benefited from that myself. Eyes on Success is made possible in part by our corporate partners. Underwriting pairs the impact of targeted marketing with the integrity of community goodwill. Learn more by sending an email to hosts at eyesonsuccess.net. This week's focus topic is what it was like for Mike to get some of his vision restored as an adult after decades of blindness. Mike, you had a procedure done when you were in your mid-40s to restore some of your vision. Can you walk us through your story and what happened? So I had no expectation of ever having vision, and it was not part of my makeup or my thinking. 
at all. And my mother was, of course, key in supporting that concept. Go out, learn your alternative tools and techniques. And having vision is not one of the things that you should be thinking about or seeking. So I was really quite shocked when uh, at age 46, I was in a doctor's office with my wife and she was getting her contacts fixed and uh, the ophthalmologist in that office said, well, let me know what's your story. And I told him and he knew the doctor that I'd had since childhood who had since passed away. And he says, well, let me take a look. And he takes a look. And he asked me my history and he says, uh, you know, we won't know without looking in with some instruments, but it is possible given new techniques of cornea and, and stem cell transplants that we can repair your eye. Possible, not by any means likely, but uh, something to think about. And that's where it all started. Stem cell treatment was pretty experimental and still is. How did that come about? So I started learning a little bit about the potential of this operation. And it turns out that at that time, there'd been something like 50 eye stem cell transplants, and only half of those were successful. So there weren't many worldwide to begin with. My doctor had done one or two, I think. So this wasn't a really high likelihood of success. And the measure of success wasn't that they became fully sighted or that they even had sight for an extended period of time. It was just some sight for some period of time. So I'm thinking, you know, I may not get any vision and, and uh, it's going to be costly. It's going to take a lot of time. I got to drive an hour and a half to San Francisco a whole bunch of times through this process. I made a, a laundry list of 20 reasons not to have this operation. And I only had a couple of things on the list of why I should have it. And the top of that list was curiosity. If I don't do this, then I'm never going to know, would it be successful? And being a pioneer, as I like to envision myself, I wasn't being Mike May if I didn't try it. So I was kind of stuck between a rock and a hard place. If I did do it, then I had all these other ramifications, including uh, the potential of increased cancer from the immune suppressant drugs and all these other expenses. That was the downside. The upside was I'd find out, would I be successful? And if so, I'd find out what it was like to see. And that tipped the scale. Yeah, I've heard that was a real risk of some of these stem cell procedures, is that they sometimes just wind up growing too much and develop into cancer-type symptoms. Is that a small probability? The cancer possibility was from the immune suppressant drugs because it's suppressing your immune reaction so that the stem cells are not rejected. At the same time, it's also suppressing lots of other immune stuff, like your immunity to cancer. So skin cancer is a, is a likely thing to come up. And in fact, I did have uh, a basal cell uh, situation that came up a few years after taking these drugs. So it, it's, a, it's a real possibility. So these are systemic drugs that you take, not just eye drops then? That's right. Is that something that continues forever? It really depends on the case. And in my situation, after about two or three years, they shut off the immune suppressant drug, the cyclosporin, and I had a really bad reaction and almost lost the eye that they had fixed. They cranked up uh, another drug, so I'm taking two now. And that went on for several years, and then they tapered them off very slowly over uh, a year or so, and, and uh, eventually I was off safely and without any repercussions. And so today I'm, a, I'm 13 years into this, and 
probably five years in without any drugs. Pete, you not so long ago decided to have a cornea transplant. And I guess the way we often make decisions is we look at, well, what's the best that can happen and what's the worst that can happen when you choose either one of the two options. So maybe you can talk a little bit about that decision. Yeah, that was an interesting decision. I couldn't see anything at all out of one eye, and I had limited vision out of one eye, but the cornea was severely clouded. And I thought, well, gee, maybe I should do this cornea operation. But that eye already had dozens of operations on it, and the chance of things going wrong was very high. And I was afraid I would lose the eye and any vision I had. And I felt that I kind of navigated around work by seeing where the doors and windows were and other signposts around the building and around the outdoors. And I wasn't sure how I would react to losing all of my vision, how much I relied on that. So I actually did a little experiment. I walked around with an eye patch over my eye for three or four days just to see what life would be like without any vision. Turned out it didn't make any difference. My brain had been filling in these pictures of what I thought I was seeing. I was so familiar with some of these environments that I believed I saw the windows and doors when really I just kind of knew where they were. So it was really an interesting experiment, and I learned a lot about that, and that helped us make the decision to go ahead and try the corneal transplant. Well, right, because it turned out there wasn't a downside. So you had the procedure then, and I take it it takes a while for the effects to be beneficial. How did that go after the procedure? The first operation was the stem cell transplant in November of 99. And then nothing happens because I still have a bad cornea. Once that tissue, new tissue grows in, then in March of 2000, I have the cornea transplant. And the expectation was that I might uh, have some benefit or we would know within one or two weeks. So the day after the operation, I went in to have the bandage changed. They took off the bandage and lo and behold, I was able to see right then and there. And that shocked the doctor and me and everybody else that was around. It just wasn't expected that there'd be any success so quickly. And how would you describe the level of your vision at this point? This is a tough question because I have very strange vision. I thought of vision as either high vision, medium vision, total, fully sighted, you know, three or four increments. And what I learned after going through my experience and talking to vision scientists is your brain processes vision in all these different sections of the visual cortex, and different sections deal with different things. Face recognition, motion detection, color, depth perception, and several more. And it's, it turned out after a couple of years, we learned that I was nearly as good as a fully sighted person in terms of color perception, which was a lot of fun. I had to learn names for colors that I'd forgotten, you know, eggplant, chartreuse, teal. But I can see those colors. And to this day, it's really exciting to be able to sit at a coffee shop and watch people in all these different colored clothing walking by and seeing the lights that are different colors. I was really good at motion detection, so I could catch a ball in the air. However, I could not recognize a face, even if somebody really familiar to me, a foot away or six inches away, let alone two or three feet, you know, normal uh, social acceptable distance away. I could not recognize somebody's face. I couldn't even tell male or female from a face. And I was also really bad at depth perception. I had 
no 3D. Hence, I learned after a couple of bad tumbles and experiences encountering my face into cement benches that uh, I really needed to stick with a cane or a dog for mobility and use the vision for sightseeing because I couldn't tell a gray bench from a gray curb or a sidewalk. They all just blended together. Unless there was contrast, I couldn't see these things. So my vision is a very strange combination of being really good in some ways and really bad in others. Has your brain been able to compensate in some ways after all these years, or it's sort of a static situation? Well, this was the subject of intense research, and I've been in an fMRI machine dozens of times. In the vision scientists, in September of 2003, published an article in Nature Neuroscience, which garnered an amazing amount of press around the world, almost more than when I had the operation to begin with. And their conclusion at that point was that MM, being me, uh, as though they were being secretive, would not be able to learn faces or depth perception, that these things were hardwired, they were stuck where they were, and that was that. And the reason for it was that visual development occurs over the first six years of your life. And mine was interrupted halfway through that period. Therefore, some things that fully develop earlier, like color perception, were in good shape. Other things that took longer, like face recognition, were uh, cut off before they were complete. And that was their rationale for why I had the vision that I had and why it was unlikely that these uh, aspects of my vision would get better. The amazing thing is that my eyeball, according to the doctor and the actual optics of the retina and the cornea and the contact and all that, my eye would be 2040, which is plenty good enough to drive a car and read a book, neither of which I can do. So I'm picking up the information in my eye. By the time it gets to the visual cortex, it's not processed completely, and that's where the bottleneck is. Mm -hmm. But yet the improved vision must help you in your everyday life to give you some extra cues you've learned to adapt to the information you do get to make it useful, I guess, right? Yeah, it took a while for me to learn and use the benefits of the new vision because it was very overwhelming. And if you do any research or reading about people that have had vision restoration after long-term blindness, you'll see that people had huge issues. Some people uh, had depression, even cases of suicide, mostly unsuccessful experiences with vision recovery. And so I had my degree of being overwhelmed. But what I learned after a couple of years was how to integrate my tools. And this is something I've always touted in terms of adaptive technology is you, you use the tools for what they're good at and you recognize their weaknesses. And what I realized was I could use my blindness skills in conjunction with my low vision skills and go to the one that was uh, had a strength in whatever situation was appropriate. And after I figured that out, things worked together uh, nicely and I was much more successful. So now, Pete, getting back to your cornea transplant, I don't remember you having any trouble at all learning how to use what vision you regained. On the other hand, you didn't regain a whole lot of vision, but you were able to visually find an object as large as a car. And I remember it was so exciting the first time we went to spread mulch around the garden, you could actually see the glint of the shovel and find the mulch pile all by yourself. So that was pretty cool. It's interesting. I think you learn to adapt to those things. If 
a normally sighted person had all of a sudden had the vision that I had at that point, they wouldn't have been able to know what to do with that vision or how to use it. In fact, they probably would have found it less than useful. But my vision had changed slowly over a number of years, so I had a chance to adapt to these situations and learn how to complement what little vision I had with other skills like listening or counting steps or just being well aware of where I was located in certain environments. And I think many visually impaired people learn to compensate with their other senses, and they learn to use those tools, as Mike says, in conjunction to optimize their situation in ways that sighted people just can't comprehend. Has your eyesight stabilized now after the 13 or so years? My eyesight has really not changed. It it hasn't gotten worse. I've had a, a few little scrapes in terms of infections, but the eyesight hasn't changed that much. The vision scientists continue to test me, and they say that perhaps I'm evolving a little bit of depth perception. Maybe I have 2.5D, not 3D. I'm not sure if that's true or if there's just an excuse so they can keep studying me because I visit with them a couple times a year. But I think it's more been a matter of me intellectually figuring out how to do things and using this integration effect. That's been really the key to the vision being better now than it used to be. So, for example, if I walk down a sidewalk and I see an object and I think, okay, it's on the sidewalk, contextually, that limits what it is. It's probably not a cow. Uh, what could it be in, in front of me on the sidewalk? Could be a person, could be a bicycle. And I couldn't tell the difference between a person and a bicycle until I look at it for five, 10 seconds. And in the beginning, it would take me longer, at least 10 seconds to figure out and make that decision. Now it would take me two seconds. So it's not that my vision's gotten better, it's that my library of information has been increased and therefore I'm faster at figuring these things out. Oh, that's very interesting. And I guess being a small number of people that went through this process, People haven't developed means of perhaps training or special things you should do to enhance these capabilities. You just have to learn on your own. There really is no rehabilitation protocol for this kind of experience because so few people have gone through it, as you say. There's nobody that I know in rehab that knows anything about this. I'm talking about my friends and family that are going to work me through this, and that's really how it evolved. When we interviewed Mike for last week's show about the Good Maps indoor navigation system, we asked him for an update nearly eight years later. And are you reading print yet? When we spoke with you last time, that was confusing. No, it is. It's hard on the brain, and that's what it's all about, the visual cortex. And since I never learned to read print visually, by the time I get to the end of a word, I forget what it is. And so I just do away with it and stick to Braille and audio. And when we last spoke with you years ago about this, you were just accommodating your brain to this new vision. And I remember you saying that you had difficulty recognizing objects. You know, if your wife was standing in front of you, you, you know, you couldn't tell whether it was a bench or your wife. Has that improved <laughs> somewhat? That, no, that's... It's pretty much the same. What's different is that my library of visual images has improved. So whereas in the beginning, I just didn't have much to work with. I, I had no context for objects. Now I've seen more things, and so I probably don't make those mistakes as often as I did in the early days. 
Now, that's an interesting way of putting it, that your library has yeah. increased. You're learning to recognize new things as you deal with them on a day-to-day basis. Yeah, and that's what sighted people do, and from babies to toddlers to children, they're building their visual library, and it works for a fully sighted person in much the same way. Absolutely. Well, I hope that continues to improve, and I'm sure it's made some difference in your life. It's got to be a big advantage to be able to at least see something and recognize some familiar objects. Yeah, I've learned how to integrate my blindness skills and my low vision skills to have the best of both worlds and to be able to shut down the visual information when it's distracting and not useful. Wow, that's great that you've been able to make it work out. was also not our usual breaker tune. That was another clip from Sarah Beck singing Crashing Through. And that entire tune can be heard at www.crashingthrough.com. Now for this week's final item, the book written about Mike's experiences and his final thoughts on what he learned in the process. Now, there was a book written about you and your experience. Is that still available? There was a book written about me. It came out in 2007. It's called Crashing Through. It was a bestseller in 2007 in the top 50 books sold on Amazon in 2007. And it was written by Robert Curson, K-U-R-S-O-N. It, of course, first came out in hardback and then eventually in paperback, which is still available And, of course, in all the different audio formats on Bookshare and Talking Book Library and a Braille version, I believe, uh, from National Braille Press or APH. I've forgotten which one. So it's everywhere in in all the different formats. And uh, you can get more information about that and links to these different sources for the book at crashingthrough.com. You said that the main reason you decided to go ahead with the procedure was curiosity. Was your curiosity satisfied, and I guess, are you happy with what you learned? I learned so much more than I ever expected. I had no idea of this whole vision science part of the equation. I had a glimmer of of this sort of thing, but nothing that was anywhere close to what I've experienced now that I've been with vision scientists. I've been in the fMRI machine. I've been involved in the papers that have been published and it's really become almost a, a second profession. I've gone to conferences where I'm the only non-PhD present, and all of these really brilliant scientists that have been studying vision for years are quizzing me, asking me questions. I went to this a medical institute in London, and they flew in vision scientists from around Europe, and I sat around this long conference table with all these different accented people asking me questions, grilling me for three or four hours straight. And it was absolutely fascinating to be involved in this and to be in a front row seat figuring out about this new vision experience. And it just happened to be about me that we were talking. Well, I guess your story really shows us what a remarkably complex and sophisticated system the human vision and brain interaction is. Thank you. And, of course, we'll have all of that information in the show notes associated with this episode at www.eyesonsuccess.net. 
That's it for show number 2126. Next week on Eyes on Success, we will be talking about the Missy Mouse series of books. How can a parent describe blindness to children who might not have experienced it? What makes some people different and how might they deal with those differences? We'll speak with Lois Strachan, author of the Missy Mouse series of books featuring a young blind protagonist aimed at helping children understand blindness. And we'll hear a short reading from the book, and it's very enjoyable. You'll want to catch that next week. You've been listening to Eyes on Success, hosted and produced by Nancy Goodman Torpy and Peter Torpy. You can access the full archive of previous shows, subscribe to the podcast, and much more by going to our website, www.eyesonsuccess.net. If you have questions about anything you've heard on the show or have suggestions for future shows, send an email to hosts at eyesonsuccess.net. Thank you for listening and have a nice day.